0: Welcome to Minnesota Matters, I'm Tasha Radel and I'm joined by m Bill Werner, Brent Palm, and Ashley Walker. We're going to delve into what's happening in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, fall colors are peaking. A major cannabis manufacturing and cultivation facility is a go. Minnesota nonprofits are rebounding following the COVID-19 pandemic, but first, Eminence Bill Werner is here with a recap of what turned out to be a very busy week on the political front in Minnesota. Among top stories continued political wrangling by the Republican majority in the U.S. House as they tried to elect a new speaker after hardliners ousted Kevin McCarthy, Steve Scalise's bid went nowhere, and moderate Republicans refused to vote for Jim Jordan. And
1: Tasha, Minnesota 6th District Congressman Tom Emmer, the majority whip, even picked up one vote, although he wasn't running for Speaker. But that might be more an indicator of fragmentation within his caucus than anything else. Colorado Republican Ken Buck is the one who voted for Emmer a second time, even after CNN asked him does he really want the Minnesota Republican to be Speaker of the U.S. House. No, I don't. I don't like Tom Emmer. I figured this would be the worst job in America. Mike Rowe would not want to do this for his TV show. This is but, a terrible job.
0: Okay, so you voted for somebody because you don't like them.
1: I, I voted for somebody because I wasn't going to vote for Jim. Yeah,
0: Jim. But, but you don't, it's not because you want him to be Speaker. Okay, well, that says a lot about where we are right now.
1: Well, we asked Carlton College analyst Stephen Shear, could Emmer eventually run for Speaker of the U.S. House? Well, a number of things
2: have to happen. Jordan's candidacy has to implode. The possibility of Patrick McHenry, McHenry who is the Speaker pro tem right now, a Republican from North Carolina, uh, that possibility that he would run for Speaker has to uh, disappear. And then there has to be enough caucus support for Emmer. Now, uh, there are indications that uh, Emmer would have problems with the hard right caucus that really opposed McCarthy because Emmer is close to McCarthy. And so it's not at all clear that there is a path to victory as speaker for Tom Emmer.
1: Also in what turned out to be political news this week, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett in Minnesota at the invitation of the University of Minnesota Law School. And opponents had their arguments prepared well before she arrived. That
3: sort of gives the impression that... The university, which both its commitment to diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice, that they stand with her decisions that she's made, which have brought us backward.
1: When Coney Barrett spoke Monday afternoon at the U of M's Northrop Auditorium on the Minneapolis East Bank campus, protesters were ready. But so were University of Minnesota authorities.
4: You could loosely say states' rights, but it's the independence of states in our federal system in which states that still...
5: Please quiet down and allow the lecture to continue. What do we do? we the What do we do? Cue the slide, please. It is ordered that this disruptive behavior cease. All disruptive parties are asked to vacate the room
6: or be subject to arrest.
2: Well, let's resume our (laughs)
7: conversation.
2: You know, Justice Barrett, we really are Minnesota nice.
6: And we don't
2: treat other people like that very often at all. So we're so delighted you're here.
1: Law professor Robert Stein continued his Q&A with Justice Barrett, at one point alluding to the very Supreme Court ruling that brought protesters to campus. The court has been
2: criticized for overturning longstanding precedent in some major decisions in the Uh past two terms. And without getting into the issues in those cases, could you comment on the weight you think should be given or that you give to longstanding precedent? How do you weigh that in deciding how to decide a case?
1: Justice Barrett responded the weight the court gives to longstanding precedents is a balancing act to not leave errors uncorrected, unless there are very good reasons to do so.
4: Overruling precedent is not something to be done lightly. But the court's own guidelines that it's always um, have, has followed for you know, centuries recognize that there are times when it is the court's duty to do so.
1: Protesters take a different view. Mira Altobell-Rasendes with Students for a Democratic Society says Justice Barrett...
3: She has played an instrumental role in the stripping of rights of so many people across the country. Millions of people have been affected.
1: And as Israel continued pounding Gaza this week after the Hamas terror attack, emotions rose in Minnesota and around the world.
5: Over 900 Israelis have been counted murdered uh, in the worst terror attack in Israel's history and the bloodiest day for the Jewish people since the Holocaust.
1: Sami Rahamim with the Jewish Community Relations Council.
8: We are watching a genocide literally taking place in front of our eyes, being televised, celebrated, and justified.
1: Mariam El-Khatib with American Muslims for Palestine. State Senator Sandy Pappas from St. Paul says she has two daughters, 21 grandchildren and a great-grandchild in northern Israel. She says the children are very stressed out, but so far safe. She says as long as the war doesn't spread.
4: There was a random rocket the other day that the Iron Dome um, caught, a big explosion in the sky, and that freaked the kids out.
1: And Pappas says...
4: I wanted for you know decades for there to be a uh, agreement on having separate states between Israel and Palestine. It just constantly seems like... Nobody can get it right. No, there's no leadership.
1: Jewish Community Relations Council's Rahmim says Hamas is ruling Gaza.
5: They aren't interested in peace. They aren't interested in a two-state solution. They've shown the world what they're interested in, which is killing, murdering,
1: Sarah Martin with Women Against Military Madness responds, many people say a two-state option is impossible.
3: Just because of all the Jewish settlements and the roads and the wall and all the land that has been taken by the Israelis have made that impossible, really.
1: Jihad Adwan, whose wife lost five family members in Gaza, says anyone who claims Israeli bombing is justified because some Gazans support Hamas, should think back to 9/11.
7: Terrorists were um, rationalizing that, saying,
5: "You know, oh, U.S. citizen, you you elected your government, your government." transgressed around around the world, so they targeted civilians. That's the same sick logic.
1: Carleton College political analyst Stephen Shear says...
2: There is a real possibility that there'll be a rising sympathy, particularly in the Arab world, for Hamas as Gaza uh, suffers from an Israeli attack.
1: But Professor Shear says Israel also takes Hamas, Hezbollah, and Iran at their word that they want to destroy Israel and get rid of all Jews in the Middle East, which Shear says has some evidence supporting it.
2: That will, I think... Motivate Israel to pursue a, an aggressive posture because they see it as an existential question now.
1: Tajra? Gotcha.
0: Thanks, Bill. More Minnesota Matters after this.
8: It's Thursday night and you're grabbing drinks with some friends. Started off with a pitcher for the table, which quickly becomes two. There's pool. Uh-oh. And there's the photo booth. All right, everybody, squeeze in. Say cheese. Followed naturally by an order of wings and another. Nothing kills a buzz like getting pulled over for buzz driving, because buzz driving is drunk driving. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council.
0: Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radal. A major cannabis manufacturing and cultivation facility is planned on the site of a former lumber mill in Grand Rapids. On this week's show, MN's Brent Palm talks with a local investment partner on the Highway 35 project, which just received a $10 million state loan.
7: Well, John Hayduke, lead investment partner in the Highway 35 Cannabis Project. Thanks for joining us today.
5: Thank you, Brent. Uh, happy to be here.
7: Hey, I learned about the project in a news release from the Iron Range Resources and Rehabilitation Board announcing um, they're going to contribute 10 million in a loan for the project. Um, we'll get into some specifics, but give us a brief overview of this proposed cannabis facility in Grand Rapids.
5: Well, the, the site that we targeted is uh, an old OSB board site. Uh, called uh, Amesworth at the time. Uh, it's roughly uh, 450,000 square feet uh, on roughly 135, 136 acres. Um, it has been um, vacant since 2007, 2008. Um, and as we were looking for uh, places to uh, potentially put a cultivation and a manufacturing, it, it quickly became, you know, the target uh, on our short list. Um, so. Uh, with that, we worked with the IRRRB for many months. They did a wonderful job on their due diligence, uh, vetting out the process. And so uh, part of what happened at the board meeting uh, was uh, the approval to move ahead with an incentive package, which would meet their mission, which is job creation and di- diversifying the economy uh, on the Iron Range. Uh, with that, uh, we need to bring uh, you know, $30, know 40000000 million of private investment uh, to the project, which we're... Um, undergoing uh, as we speak Uh, and uh, as the phases get built out um, and we hit our targets, uh, you know, the incentive money will be uh, available to us. So it certainly is helping us start the project out uh, the right way and the ability to scale it and uh, really looking forward to that project coming to fruition uh, on the Iron Range and specifically in, in
7: Grand Rapids. Yeah, I mean, the news release said uh, the facility hopes to be an industry leader for the state of Minnesota. Um, I think you mentioned it could create up to 400 jobs, a big boon for the economy in northeastern Minnesota. Do we, do we have a potential workforce up there?
5: Well, you know, so it's it, workforce issues uh, everywhere, as you know. But, you know, in particular with this industry uh, now being legalized, there are many uh, folks uh, that are working in this industry in other states. Uh, that will have an opportunity to come back. Uh, there are certainly folks uh, in the state of Minnesota that may want to move back uh, to where they grew up uh, in northern Minnesota. So we feel uh, that this project is going to attract uh, some employee base to the area. Uh, and certainly, uh, you know, with the high-tech nature of what this industry is today, it certainly is a good, good potential employer for, uh, for the market.
7: Yeah, I noticed the, the plans mentioned that uh, we're going to use some some modern agri- agriculture technology, LED lights, HVAC systems. I'm guessing this uh, this isn't uh, Cheech and Chong in the 70s, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's
5: you're exactly, you're exactly right. It's very, very uh, high tech. Uh, we're planning on a state-of-the-art uh, facility. When you think about uh, the cannabis industry uh, today, uh, much, much different uh, than the one that uh, you and I grew up with uh, in the uh, early 70s.
7: So, are we recruiting some some experts in horticulture, growers, farmers? Or obviously, we'll be looking for those people at some point.
5: Sure, from a timing standpoint, um, you know, give or take, because uh, there's still there's still some timelines that need to be uh, facilitated uh, from the state standpoint. But you know, you know, just an estimated uh, timeline. You know, we. We plan to finish our part of the project, be done within a, you know, within a year, give or take. Um, and then depending upon uh, timelines and regulations and, and licensing, that will dictate, you know, when we're able to grow and, and, and start. So I would anticipate that first, second quarter of 2024 was really uh, where you'll see some recruiting for, for talent.
7: And I'm sure there's talent in other states and talent here. You know, I did a story with uh, an official at St. Cloud State University about a month ago, and they just started a cannabis program there that has four different certificates. So it sounds like a lot of folks think there's a real future in this industry.
5: Well, there really is. Uh, And again, I think, you know, when you're uh, the fact, you know, being 2023, uh, the technology associated with this industry is, is actually kind of mind-blowing and advanced, and we're already getting inquiries on, you know, timeline for, for hiring uh, folks reaching out that they're, you know, working in a different state and are interested in coming back. So, you know, we anticipate there'll be lots and lots of interest, and we're excited about uh, that. We're excited about the industry being legalized here in Minnesota. And again, I think, you know, this is this is just one project of many. Uh, it's going to take a lot of projects to stand up the industry, uh, here in the next year or two. So, you know, we're going to do our best to help uh, as many folks as we can get into this business and, and, you know, make sure Minnesota is, is a poster child to the rest of the country.
7: And it might seem like early 2025 for retail sales in Minnesota is a long way off, but I'm guessing when you have a business plan like this, that's not a ton of time, right?
5: It's really not. Uh, in fact, uh, if anything, you know, you're running up against, uh, you know, it's going to it's going to be tight. Um, of course, you know, you do have the licensing piece that goes along with it, uh, but it will go by really, really quick. Um, and so, you know, you think about trying to be ready to go in a year uh, so you can be ready to plant uh, that year is going to it's, it's going to fly by.
7: Well, John, Hyde, thanks so much for filling us in on the project. Um, we definitely like to check back with you and maybe a year for an update, if that's OK.
5: Uh, that would be great, Brent. You can uh, get in touch with me anytime you want and uh, look forward to uh, uh, connecting again. Okay? Thank you.
0: MN's Brent Palm and Highway 35 Project Investment Partner John Hyduke. Time for a quick break. More Minnesota Matters after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radal. The Minnesota Council of Nonprofits has released two new Minnesota-specific reports that use public and nonprofit data to detail the current place and role of the nonprofit sector in Minnesota's overall economy, as well as illuminate the impacts of recent and current events on individual nonprofits and the state's broader nonprofit sector. Joining me today is Kari Honested, Associate Director of the Minnesota Council of Nonprofits. Wanted to visit with you a little bit. I understand a couple of reports have recently come out that are kind of showing us the current climate um, of Minnesota nonprofits. And obviously, I know we can't get into every nook and cranny, but just wondering if there was anything that really stuck out in your mind uh, in this year's
4: report. Yes, the Minnesota Council of Nonprofits is very excited to share that we've released two reports in the last week. So one is our Minnesota nonprofit economy report. This is a longitudinal report series that we've been sending out for about 20 years that sort of tracks the contributions and role of nonprofit organizations in Minnesota. And then we also are excited to release our current conditions report. This is our seventh one that we've kind of written and released since March of 2020. So it's a responsive, survey series that we've been conducting to try to track in real time the conditions uh, on impacting nonprofit organizations' work as our world has been rapidly changing. So to your question, there's a couple of key things that are coming out of these reports that are of interest for watching, some celebration and some concerns. of celebration, you know, we were excited to see that nonprofit organizations, in terms of the number of employees that they have, is making a rebound. In 2020, you know, the nonprofit sector was not immune, like many other sectors, business and government, uh, from the effects of the pandemic. We saw a pretty significant drop in workers. Uh, we make up about 14% of the state's economy, uh, but since uh, 2020, we've regained. Uh, we lost about 30,000 workers, and we are now back to. Just under 5,000 of where we were in 2019. So, workers are coming back. Our sector is uh, coming back to where we had been at pre-pandemic levels, but we're we're not quite there yet. But we're we're making a faster recovery than some other sectors.
0: And then when it comes to um, you know charitable giving, what is that environment looking like?
4: One of the longitudinal questions that we've been asking in our current conditions survey is about changes in charitable giving, and we we asked specifically about you know charitable giving coming from individuals, uh, from corporations, and then foundations like private uh, community foundations and and corporate giving programs. Unfortunately, this is one of the the things to watch slash concerning trends that we saw come out of this last survey. So. For the previous six surveys, all through COVID, uh, we were encouraged to see that high numbers of nonprofit respondents uh, were reporting actually increased charitable giving to their organizations. You know, many philanthropists recognized that community, communities were being negatively impacted by uh, the stress of a global pandemic, and nonprofit organizations are often the first or only uh, front lines in providing essential community services. So we were, we were encouraged to see uh, that nonprofit organizations were receiving kind of increased support from communities. Unfortunately, in this last round, we saw um, the highest number of respondents reporting decreased giving from individuals and uh, grants. That was about a third of respondents. So in past surveys, just for reference, we usually only saw maybe up to 10% of respondents saying that they were experiencing decreases. So Unfortunately, a higher number of people were reporting that they're seeing that type of funding going down right now.
0: And I'm assuming, you know, more on an individual level, do you think
4: that, you know, um, some of the stimulus funding is running out along with, I guess, just everyday life and higher inflation rates? I think that can absolutely be a factor. The the economy has been all over the place or, or the market i should say has been all over the case all over the place of the last couple of years uh so I'm sure that that's definitely impacting or informing um how people individuals are approaching uh their charitable giving and 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 larger planning um we've seen inflation has uh been pretty significant in the last two years um with it being at um eight point nine percent or sorry eight oh, the, the numbers are going to evade me now, somewhere between 8 and 9% and somewhere around 5 to 6% in the last year. And if you look over the last 20 years, we hadn't seen those numbers since like the 80s. So historic level of inflation that I know is uh, really impacting families' bottom lines, and that can in turn then impact our ability to give charitably to nonprofits. All right. Well, Kari, those are some of the key questions I had. Was there anything else you wanted to add today? Yeah, I guess I would just add that another key thing that came out of our uh, economy report was some exciting new information about uh, pay parity. Um, We, for the first time ever, received some data from the Minnesota Department of Employment and Economic Development on how nonprofit wages, uh, when you compare what female workers are earning compared to their male, male colleagues, we were able to see how the nonprofit sector is faring compared to the statewide average and some national averages. So... You know it's hard work being in a nonprofit organization, but it's it's meaningful and it's exciting to see that you know in nonprofits, um, female workers are earning almost ninety five percent of their male colleagues' uh, wages. And if you contrast that by statewide, that that averages eighty five point five percent, and nationally, it's only eighty two percent. So we still have some work to do. Ideally, it would be one hundred percent both ways, but uh, it is encouraging to see that the nonprofit sector is
0: is leading the way a bit in uh, pay equity through the lens of gender. Thanks again to my guest, Kari Onestead, Associate Director of the Minnesota Council of Nonprofits. Time for our last break. Stay tuned.
6: Did you know that more lives are lost to lung cancer each year than breast, colorectal, and prostate cancers combined? Lung cancer will claim more than 135,000 lives this year. But new treatments have improved survival for many with the disease and offer new hope for many more. So does lung cancer screening with low-dose chest CT. The American Cancer Society and most major professional organizations recommend that adults ages 55 and older with a long history of smoking, even if they have quit, should talk with their doctor to learn more about lung cancer screening. Lung cancer screening saves lives by detecting lung cancer early when it's more successfully treated. So... Ask your doctor if lung cancer screening is right for you. And if you smoke, ask your doctor to help you quit. Visit the National Lung Cancer Roundtable website at nlcrt.org. That's nlcrt.org.
0: Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radel. Fall colors are peeking across the state. Eminence Jake Griffith got an update with the DNR's Jenna play. The question
9: that I had was, Did the fall colors arrive later this year? Did they arrive on time? Did they arrive earlier? I guess, what can you tell me about that? Yeah,
3: so this year they did arrive a little later than average, primarily in the southern part of the state. And that was due to the um, record heat that we had in September and early October.
9: Awesome. That's what I thought. We were I, I pitched this idea in our news meeting, and then Bill Werner, uh, who's been here for a, a while, he was like, I think the fall colors arrived late this year. You should ask about that. And so I was mm-hmm. like,
4: oh.
3: yep, Thanks. yep, he was right. Yeah, not so much in the northern parts of the state um, where they didn't have quite the heat impact, especially around Lake Duluth. Uh, but certainly in, in other parts of the state, it has been delayed by a week or two um, beyond the average
9: is that uh, you know and obviously a lot of there's a lot of focus on you know hey it's, it's getting hotter right it's getting hotter for longer the world's getting hotter is that a concern of your all's office that that could start to have long term impacts if we see you know temperatures continue to to rise
3: i don't know that i would call it a concern um but we would expect you know this fall color to shift a little bit later um as the years do warm so the primary factor that uh, contributes to the fall color changes is, is day length. Um, and then temperature is up there as a factor too. But since the, the time, the length of the day isn't going to change as much, we'll still see this fall color shift happening. Uh, but yeah, we would expect with the warming climate uh, that fall colors will peak on the later end of the spectrum
9: over the long run. What is it that makes Minnesota's fall color so unique? Is it about the the, the kinds of trees and, and the, you know, I'm I'm at a loss for the word. It's right on the tip of my tongue, but I think you know where I'm going with this. Uh, yeah. But just what makes Minnesota's fall colors so unique?
3: I would say you're you're right on with the the tree species we have. Um, we have a lot of beautiful maples. We have a lot of oaks in the southern part of the state. Um, we've got the aspens and birches that turn these beautiful yellows and golds um, in the northern part of the state, and just a lot of uh, forested areas. Um, but also some rolling hills that give you those great views of color. Um, So like along the St. Croix and some of the other areas of the state, there's just great vantage points to see Um, so much forest at once, which I think really helps. And then just kind of like a a little plug for one of my personal favorite trees As someone not native to the state. um, We have tamaracks or larches in Minnesota, and they are a conifer. uh, But unlike other conifers, they actually turn golden and drop their needles in the fall. And I think that's a pretty special tree <laughs> that you don't see in, in some other states.
9: Yeah, that's very interesting. I, I, did, I did not realize that. Um, and then that kind of leads me to my, my next question. Uh, you know, if you're someone like me that likes to get out and explore and, and likes to be out in the outdoors during the fall and the wintertime, where are maybe some of the best places to, to take a look at fall colors? It doesn't even have to be in cities, it can be statewide.
3: Right, so um, very popular would be the North Shore. They're a little bit past peak already, and then the storms they had in the last couple weeks kind of stripped some leaves from the trees, Um, but that's a popular destination. But I would suggest that folks go to the DNR's Fall Color Finder uh, website. It tracks the colors starting in September, uh, so you can kind of follow along as fall color advances south through the state, and it also is really useful for finding a park to go explore. Um, users can submit photos they've taken of their adventure, so you can kind of get a sense of like what species of trees and what the landscape looks like, and um, the DNR also sends out a newsletter uh, that highlights different parks and regions. So, I'd say there's something for everybody in the state, you know, it kind of depends on um, how late in the fall we are, or what you like to do, or what kind of tree species you have, but there really is something in every direction.
9: And then the last question uh, I have, and you mentioned the word uh, peak, you're talking about the North Shore past their peak. Because the fall colors arrived later, is the window now tighter for people to be able to see that? When can we expect to see that peak pass for, uh, you know, majority of the state?
3: Sure. So, Today's fall color tracker, they update on Wednesdays, and it does show kind of a past peak for the northern third of the state, Um, kind of along Duluth and the more southern part of the North Shore, still showing 75 to 100 percent. Other parts of the state are in that 75 to 100 percent range. Um, Colors can last around two weeks, uh, but it's, again, largely dependent on storms or heavy rainfall or wind, you know, they can kind of take down those leaves a little bit early. Um, but I would say this weekend, looking at the weather ahead, it's going to be a, a beautiful opportunity to get out and explore. And I'm not sure what the what the further forecast is, uh, but any time before like a hard frost, it's still a good opportunity to get out and check out some of that color.
0: That's MN's Jake Griffith with Jenna Play of the Minnesota DNR. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Minnesota Matters. Be sure to join us again next week on this MN affiliate station, same time, same place. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, I'm Tasha Radal.